And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning, of course, as we get ready to wrap up yet another week of February. Of course, uh, we've got a few things coming right around the corner that are very important, not to forget. One of those is Valentine's Day. So, you know, already they're setting up all the tents in Kroger parking lots. So just uh, just be aware. Don't, don't forget. I mean, today's the 8th. So next week is Valentine's. Just I'm just giving you fair warning that it's coming up. Don't let it surprise you and get yourself into trouble. So if we do this every year, got to help them in, right? We've, it's a public service announcement. That's right. Just keep everybody out of trouble. So just letting you know. Exactly. President Biden says happy 4th of Valentine's. So <laughs> I'm just joking. Just teasing. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, so this morning got a few things that are going on. Um, economic data is, you know, been doing better than expected. Uh, the growth rate that the Atlanta Fed now expects for the economy in the first quarter has is running right around 3.4 percent. So again, no real sign here of any, you know, uh, you know, underlying economic weakness that's going to lead to recession. You know, a lot of questions, though, right, about this data, right? The employment data. Now, the headline looks great. Underneath the surface, it's a train wreck. So what does that really mean about the economy? Well, again, you know, if we take a look at a lot of factors, uh, you know, uh, like, um, you know, for instance, this morning, there was a chart of financial obligations ratio. And this is the ratio of financial obligations for families, right? How much, how much are they in debt, basically, to, to speak? And that's near a very low level, like one of the lowest levels on record. And, and so if you look at that piece of data, it suggests that households are doing fantastic, right? They, they, their financial uh, obligations ratio is very low, so they've got lots of excess cash to spend. Looks fantastic. Problem is... Again, once you look in the data, it's not so great because when we take a look at that data as a function, this goes with anything. If you take a look at uh, you know, household debt, debt ratios, debt to income ratios, or you take a look at savings ratios, those type of things, it's all very skewed by the top 10% of income earners. Once you start getting down into the 50, 60, 70 percentile range and lower, it's dramatically worse. A lot of those families are heavily in debt. Their financial obligations ratios are very high. They have very low savings and they're living paycheck to paycheck. So it's a very bifurcated economy, but unfortunately that feeds into a lot of this economic data. Um, you know, things like uh, wage growth, right? When you hike the minimum wage, that leads to an increase in the wage growth. Right? So we now see wages growing because we're hiking minimum wages. So we're requiring companies to pay more for hourly labor. But what it doesn't tell you is, is that a lot of those companies are now laying off those workers, replacing them with automation, higher productivity, et cetera, to compensate for those higher wages. So the, the point is, is that when we look at a lot of this economic data, it looks good on the surface. And, you know, from the market standpoint, that's all that really matters. Look, you know, we can look below this data and we can pick it apart all day long, but the markets don't care about that. The markets look at the, the headline data. That's what they trade off of. Employment's good. Wage growth is good. No sign of recession. Buy more stock, right? So, again, you've got to keep these things 
in perspective, but when we start to look underneath the surface of all this data, it's not nearly as strong as it looks, which suggests that ultimately we're probably overpaying for a lot of equities that we own right now, and there'll eventually be a reversion at some point to justify that, but that could be next year, it could be five years from now, it can be a lot longer than you expect. But nonetheless, these are the things that we continue to kind of watch and pay attention to because this is where risk comes into portfolios over time. And, uh, you know, one of the, the, the problems that and we've discussed here on the show before is that one of the problems that investors have is they tend to get too wrapped up in the data, trying to pick it apart. They come up with these very bearish narratives. Well, I don't want to be invested in the market with that hanging out there. And then they miss a big chunk of the run. But there is some stuff right now that's going on, and this is going to be the subject of this weekend's newsletter. So be sure and get by the website and get subscribed to our weekly newsletter if you haven't gotten it. It's the Bull Bear Report right on the homepage. Just click the link to subscribe. Uh, but one thing we're looking at this weekend is that the internals of the market is very different than the headline. So when you take a look at the headline of the market, that's a very, very different story about what's happening internally in the market. So here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. So yesterday, we wrote on Tuesday uh, an article, it's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com, talking about S&P 5000. Big round psychological number, markets are gonna get there, they're gonna gravitate to that. Yesterday, the market got to 4,999.53. Missed it by 47 bips yesterday of getting to 5,000. Uh, this morning, futures are looking to open a smidge weaker. I suspect that we're going to try to make that attempt to 5,000 probably today, if not tomorrow. But we did close at 4,981 uh, yesterday. So, I mean, you're, you're right. We're right there. Like, we're within like five points of an all-time high. So, you know, the market set an all-time high yesterday, pushing up there. But here's the interesting part. So, yes, markets are back to overbought. We're still on a buy signal. Again, so from the headline that we're looking at, absolutely nothing wrong with this. Problem is, is when you look at the internals. The internals are weakening. The number of stocks above their 50-day moving average are turning lower. The number of stocks above their 200-day moving average has turned lower. So the, what we're seeing is a deterioration of participation within the market even though the market's going up. And again, you know, why is the market going up? We've talked about this you know, before, but this is those top 10 stocks that are dragging about 35% of these passive inflows. So as the market's going up, everybody's throwing money into the S&P 500 index ETF, and that's fueling these top stocks, Meta, Facebook, Apple, Google, et cetera, right? And that's continuing to just draft the market higher. The problem is that the rest of the market is selling off at that same time. And so that internal deviation is certainly something worth paying attention to and certainly suggests that the market is substantially weaker than what the headlines suggest. And again, you take a look at what's happened. We talked about this yesterday, but the gap in performance between the S&P 500 and the rest of the index, you start talking about the S&P 600 as example, small cap stocks. Small cap stocks have been vastly underperforming this year. They are, they are, they've actually been declining their return negative uh, on a year-to-date basis. But again, you know, we go back and look at small caps over just the last couple of years, and you know, they have just done absolutely nothing at this point in terms of actually getting some traction. So again, when we take a look at the market, this has been a market driven by a very, very a relatively narrow breadth of stocks that are moving this market higher. Again, doesn't mean anything, you know, today, right? But you have a lot of bullish exuberance. If you take a look at uh, uh, investor sentiment, you take a look at investor allocations, 
They're very, very bullish, but yet that bullishness is underlied by this very weak internal mix that we have going in the market. So suggested at some point there's going to be a give back to that and this, and this type of, of mix of, of data where you have very strong bullish attitudes, a very narrow breadth, weakening participation has typically been denoted near market peaks uh, before intermediate term corrections. Now, again, when we're talking about a correction, we're not talking about a crash. So don't go, Lance said the market's going to crash. Get out of the market. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that a 5 to 10% correction to rectify some of these issues is becoming highly probable. And the question is only a function of timing and what triggers it. We're going to go into some of those triggers potentially today because it'll have a lot to do with the Federal Reserve. But there are some other risks on the horizon that could trigger a little bit of a reset in the market. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. And we'll pick up with this conversation with Michael Leibowitz right after the break. But be sure you by the website. Get our latest daily market commentary. Subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't yet. Be sure and like this channel. And we appreciate that as well. We need your subscriptions here to keep this channel going, right? So there you go. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Nothing sinks a marriage quicker than money issues. This Valentine's Day, promise you'll respect your lover's credit. Communicate about your money. And share together our first Candid Coffee for 2024. Five Money Habits of Unhappy Couples. Saturday, February 24th. Richard Rosso and Danny Ratcliffe will have money tips to help revive your financial harmony. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Five Money Habits of Unhappy Couples. Candid Coffee with Ratcliffe and Rosso. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show. Michael Leibowitz is joining us this morning. Uh, tomorrow uh, on the website, we're writing an art. I've got an article that's coming out talking about the housing market and um, you know the problem with affordability, what's going on. Of course, solutions for that problem are something that was interesting because I wrote the article that was before I started seeing a couple of bills that are kind of trying to formulate their way around Congress. Now, these bills aren't going to go anywhere, but... These bills are trying to, A, one of them would require hedge funds to sell all of their residential equity holdings at 10% a year over the next 10 years. So in other words, over the next 10 years, this bill would require hedge funds to completely divest themselves of residential houses. And of course, you know, the problem is housing prices, affordability, uh, the, the ability for people to get to a home. Um, another one is another bill that's floating around is also uh, would require companies that are buying houses to fully disclose all cash purchases and who bought it, right? So if there's an all cash purchase of a house, this bill would require the buyer. So it couldn't be just a, a blanket shell company or whatever it is. It's actually show the buyer of the house. Uh, again, you know, so the, the goal here is to try to to solve this housing problem because it's become a, a much bigger issue. But tomorrow's article goes a little bit more in depth into that, um, shows you some of the statistics. But just a quick one, 43% of all houses that were bought or sold last year were done by hedge funds. So this, that, that's the problem for housing right now, uh, turned into rentals. 
So anyway, uh, that all could be out in the morning on the website. Um, you know, one of the issues that we have going on right now is, you know, this this big debate between, and we talk about this every week, but uh, this week we've had a whole bunch of Fed speakers out and the market is still clinging to this hope of a lot of rate cuts this year. But the strong economic data that we're getting certainly potentially undermines that hope of five to seven rate cuts. Again, the Fed's talking three, the market's talking five to seven. And this very strong economic data from employment to the other things that are going on, uh, et cetera, within the economy. Uh, we've got improving leading economic indicators. You've got improving, improving manufacturing, improving services indexes, um, services back into expansion territory. So the economic data is getting stronger here. And that certainly kind of, of undermines this idea that the Fed's going to need to aggressively cut rates to potentially offset a recession. And so, Mike, you know, this kind of brings up the, 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 the big potential problem for the markets. The markets are rallying strongly on this hope of, you know, rate cuts, easier financial conditions, et cetera. But this data may keep the Fed on hold a lot longer than they expect. Yeah, it seems like uh, maybe the Fed's been uh, listening to your show here. Uh, <laughs> Why cut? Right. That's what it comes down to. Why cut? Right. If the economy is strong, if unemployment is low, if inflation keeps coming down, whatever you're doing is working. So why cut? And I, I think they're kind of gravitating towards that camp and scared that if they cut too soon, they're going to reignite the uh, reignite inflation, push growth even stronger. Um, and they're they're kind of putting the market back a little, saying you're getting ahead of yourselves. We're going to cut, but it may not be to the middle of the year, maybe even later. I mean, if we keep seeing economic data like this, they may not cut this year uh, or they do a token cut. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, so much depends on economic data and this economic data is all over the place. So, uh, well, I'm no, sorry, no. I didn't have my microphone next to me. <laughs> yeah, you sound much better. But it, look, this brings up a great point, though. You know, if you take a look, let's just take employment because that's an easy one, easy one to pick on, right? And everybody's well aware of it. But you know, we just had 335,000 jobs. So from the headline, it's like you know, employment's doing great. Why would I cut rates here? But again, we get underneath right. the surface. The data was a disaster. It was mostly part-time labor, a lot of foreign-born labor versus native-born. The household survey was was drastically worse than the the BLS employment report, you know. So again, there's certainly some indications that the economy is not nearly as strong as these head these headlines suggest. But again, the Fed tends to kind of work off this headline data, which lags also, by the way. <laughs> so there is this dichotomy that's going on that that maybe the markets are trying to say, hey, look, you know, the economy's a lot weaker. You need to cut more than what you're saying. And the Fed's going, no, we're not. I, this is the confusing part for markets. Well, and, I, you know, there's still a headwind and a growing head, headwind from higher interest rates, and it's coming. The lag effect still exists. We didn't disallow the lag effect or make it illegal. So the Fed knows that at some point, higher interest rates are really going to drag on the economy. And I think they're trying to get ahead of that but not too far ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And, they're, you know, they can't thread this needle like they think they can. It's too hard to do. The economy is so big and so dynamic. 
And the Fed has never been able to do it. Economists have never been able to, they don't predict recessions. The recessions kind of come out of, not out of thin air, there are plenty of reasons for recessions, but it, it's, you know, it's human psychology behaviors, consumption behaviors that, that can drive it and those can change quickly. But for now, the Fed is is in, at a point where they're, they don't need to, to do anything. Uh, but just stay vigilant. You know, I, I think the unemployment market continues to be the one to watch. And that's kind of given us fits right now. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the, they, they added 300. What was it? 335,000 jobs. Yeah. But but if you look just underneath the surface, you'll find that the household survey lost jobs. So when they poll big companies, they, they added jobs. But when you talk to people, they lost jobs um, and that divergence has grown. It's one of the largest divergences we've seen over the last, you know, three, six months mm -hmm. uh, and beyond. So and there's a host of data within that employment report that kind of tells you the same thing, that there's something wrong, that something doesn't make sense. There's full time hires are going down while part time jobs are going up. Mm -hmm. um, Wages popped up, but but the hours worked fell down by two tenths of a percent. That's a bit. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a big drop, two tenths of a percent, more than offsets the 0.6 percent rise in wages. Right. And and look, ADP. You know, Lance, you and I have talked about this for ages. ADP is based on real data. The Fed should just be using ADP and maybe other services that keep track of employees time worked and hours and salaries mm -hmm. it's been growing roughly a hundred thousand a month well below what the bls says so there, there's reason for concern in the employment mark but again even if you use adp numbers or some other numbers it's not there's it's not a disaster by any stretch it's right. just it's just slower growth moderate growth it's not the explosive growth that we see in the headline number Right. But again, you know, that's why. So in theory, right, um, the Fed would cut rates to offset slower growth. Right. They don't they're, they're trying to avoid the recession. Right. They don't they don't want a recession. They're trying to avoid it. And the, the theory is, is that if you're getting slower economic growth, that's why the Fed's going to cut rates is to try to, you know, you know, not allow or, you know, to try to moderate the rate of slowing in the economy. So it just you, know, right. you maybe you get a maybe you get a mild recession, but it's not a deep one. Right. Um, right. You know, but but again, you know, this is you know, what does the Fed see that we don't see, and and you know, what are they looking at now? Again, that brings you know, of course, that brings up what happened with uh, the regional bank in New York this week. Of course, you know, another bank on the ropes. Then here we are, just less than you know, a month or so from the time last year where we had Silicon Valley Bank blowing up and and regions another. So, you know, here we are kind of back with regional bank and the headlines. Is there is there risk in the banking market that we're not aware of? Because if you take a look at the major banks, they seem to be doing okay, but there's these pockets of regional weakness out there in these regional banks that does that have the Fed concerned here? Uh, of course it does. And the Fed see the thing is with these regional with banks in general, the Fed kind of loses control when the stock and bond markets start to sense problems, blood in the water. Mm -hmm. They pound on these stocks. Right. And New York uh, Community Bank, which owns Flagstar Bank, which is a big bank, and they they bought signature. They bought most of the assets of, of the failed signature bank about a year ago from the FDIC. 
is a huge bank. And what happened was they had to raise their loan loss reserve significantly. The market freaked out. The stock's down, what is it, 60, 70% now? Yeah. And once that happens, other banks won't lend to the bank. And they run into a liquidity problem. So they may not have had a liquidity problem, but the stock and bond market forced a liquidity problem on them. And that's something that really scares the Fed is that that investors today could say, well, let's go to a different bank. Let, let's go to, to Bank of America. Let's pound on that stock. And we can almost force a liquidity problem. And that's out of the Fed's control. All the Fed can do is provide liquidity. And the Fed just told us, actually, at the Fed's last meeting, they've removed anything about banking issues right. and liquidity. Which is interesting, right? As soon as they do. So they did two things just recently. One is they removed the ability for these banks to arbitrage the bank term funding program, right. which is now set to end in March. Um, that'll be the big question. Do they actually end that program or not? And then, they, then of course, the Fed just said, oh, yeah, we don't see any banking issues whatsoever. Then as soon as they say that, <laughs> you have this community <laughs> Literally bank Literally to the day. <laughs> exactly. Um so it just kind of show you they're not they're not totally omnipotent and and uh, we'll, you know we'll uh, see how this works out. But you know, do, does does this ending of the bank term funding program potentially put other banks at risk, or is or is that something that is something not to worry about? Yeah, no, it definitely does. It was a source of liquidity, and now again, stock and bondholders know that there's a missing source of liquidity, and they will take you know, action if they feel it, it's necessary. And look, these banks are sitting on massive commercial real estate losses on mm -hmm. top of just bond losses and, and other assets just because yields and interest rates have gone up. So there is the potential that other banks follow their course, right? There are, there are plenty of other large regional banks that are down five mm -hmm. to 15% over the last few weeks. So. Yeah. You know, just keep an eye on the headlines. You know, one of the things I watch closely real, is real, the heat real, map of stocks. Yeah, and real, I, I real, hey Mike, real banks. quick, Mike, real quick, I'm on a break. Uh, when we come back, though, I will talk. I want, I want to switch to the bond market. A lot of people asking about, you know, what's our bond strategy now. We'll talk about that after the break. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So um, lots of questions over the last. It's interesting, you know, the um, week before last, we had a very sharp drop in yields ahead of the FOMC meeting. And then after the FOMC meeting, uh, rates have pulled back a bit. And uh, again, it's always interesting when, you know, when yields are falling, everybody's all f fine and dandy. And then as soon as yields tick up a little bit after getting, you know, overbought, um, I immediately start getting emails from people going, is, is you know, what, what's happening? Why are yields going up? And, you know, is, is your bond strategy changed? And so I thought it was just kind of a good opportunity, Mike, for us to just kind of go over you know, our outlook for bonds long term. And again, you know, if you're trading bonds from one day to the next, then that's a different story. You know, when we're buying bonds, we're looking at a very long, long term time frame um, as it relates to economic activity, et cetera. But again, you know, this this, you know, always generates a lot of questions, Mike. And so has our bond strategy changed at this point of where we see yields over the course of the next 18 to 36 months? 
Well, two things, and they both kind of go back to the Fed. If the Fed doesn't cut rates as much as they as much as the market thinks they do, and if the Fed stays vigilant against inflation, they will keep rates higher. And that while short term rates may have to go up and yield because the Fed won't cut as much longer term bonds, which is what we're focused on, it should be better for them because they're forcing lower inflation. They're they're putting more of a damper on economic growth. So I thought that that's a positive, even regardless of how the market reacts in the day or two afterwards. Mm -hmm. That's a positive. The other big positive is that bonds feed off inflation and where they think inflation is going to be. And I think Powell characterized inflation really well. He said our risk on inflation is not that we get another surge of inflation. It's that inflation remains sticky, right? Inflation's depending on the measure right around 3%. So his concern is that inflation stays around 3% and doesn't drop to 2%, which is their target. And that's where they want it to go. Well, if inflation stays at 3%, longer term bond yield should be closer to three and a quarter, three and a half percent based on historic on the historical relationship. So even if and this is the Fed's concern, inflation stays at three, bond yields are still 50 to 75 basis points too high. Right. right. Now you get into the the other side of the coin, you get a recession or just a deep slowdown or inflation gets to two percent or below. And bond yields are way too high. So, you know, I, I think he kind of in the, the the commentary and and everything Powell has said and what a lot of other Fed speakers have said, yields can certainly go higher. And there are other things that drive yields besides economic growth and inflation. But those are all short term drivers that that affected over weeks, maybe a month or two. They're narratives and these narratives die ultimately succumbing to inflation and, you know, economic growth, which helps drive inflation. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, we've done this analysis, you know, so many times before we've written articles and, and have done correlation charts. There's a very high correlation long term between inflation, economic growth and and interest rates. And again, just, you know, uh, you know, just in case you're not familiar with bonds and, and Mike and I have done this conversation before, but I think it's always an important primer to understand how interest rates are derived. You know, where interest rates just aren't a function of bond market traders out there just, you know, kind of going willy-nilly from one day to the next. There's actually a reason why interest rates track economic growth and inflation is because if I'm a, if I'm lending money, so leave treasuries out from let's just talk about bonds in general. If I'm going to loan money to Mike so my and I say, Mike, you know, I need to I need to loan you some money. He says, OK, great. I'll issue an IOU. That's all a bond is. It's just an IOU. It's a promise to pay Good me back. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. So Mike <laughs> promises to pay me back in 10 years the money I loan him. Well, that interest rate, I can't change that from year to year. I can't go to Mike next year and say, oh, that interest rate I charged you last year was too low. I've got to raise it. Unless, you know, it's a variable rate bond. But, you know, and we're just talking about straight bond issuance. So as a bond issuer right? That interest rate has to account for what I expect inflation to be, because that's going to determine my purchasing power parity of that investment over that 10-year period. It's got to accommodate for opportunity costs. Could I invest that money in something with a higher yield? So if I'm expecting really strong economic growth, 
I'm going to charge him a higher rate. And it's also the demand for my capital. If Brent is also in, in, in the market bidding for a loan and he wants an IOU and Brent says, hey, I'm willing to pay you 5.5%. Mike's only offering me 5 I'm going to go to the 5.5% guy, right? But that interest rate has to reflect interest rate, opportunity cost, credit risk. Is Mike going to pay me back or not? And like you said, good luck with that. So I'm going to charge him more for the potential he's not going to pay me back. So that interest rate is fixed and it can't be changed over the duration of that loan. So it has to account for all these factors. And this is why when you take a look at the bond market in particular and bond traders, they're very focused on fundamentals versus the stock market. We buy stocks just because they're going up. But somebody in the bond market, when they're loaning money, they're looking at the financial statements. They're looking at cash flows. They're looking at credit risk. They're looking at all these fundamental issues to determine what that rate should be to compensate for the risk of loaning money at a fixed rate over a long period of time. Mike, fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, to me, at the end of the day, most of it, when you're looking out longer term, shorter term, there's all kinds of factors. Longer term, it's inflation. If, if you lend me money, you want to make sure that you're making at least the rate of inflation, that you're not losing purchasing power by lending me money. So you may you say, well, I think inflation is going to be two percent. I'm going to lend it to him at two and a half percent. That way, I'm if inflation is two percent, I'm guaranteed that I will have more money in the future, that more purchasing power in the future than I have today. Right. So, you know, again, what are inflation expectations? And when you're looking at a three month bond inflation expectation, we're going to get three CPI reports. They could be all over the place. So the three month bond yield can whip around. And, and, you know, it's not just inflation, but what's the Fed going to do? That has a huge effect on the three month. But when we're investing out 10, 20, 30 years, you have to kind of put your blinders on a little bit and really think about well, what's going to happen in year four and year seven and year nine, because they're just as important as what's going to happen over the next three months. And you need a long term economic forecast, inflation forecast understand all the trends from the last 30, 40 years, why those trends have been occurring. Will they continue to occur? Will Is there a reason to think that inflation is going to spike back up like it did in the 60s and 70s where we had recurring inflationary episodes? So that's, again, to Lance, your point, it's fundamentals. And the longer the maturity on your bond, the more the longer term fundamentals matter and the less the very short term wiggles and narratives and, uh, you know, what's the Fed going to do or not do really matter. Right. right. If you own a 10 year bond, does it matter if the Fed cuts rates in in March or June? It, it's irrelevant. Right. And, and again, look, just because we we're investing in bonds that are 10 or 20 or 30 years in duration does not mean we're going to hold the bond for 30 years. Right. <laughs> it just means that we're buying duration because that's going to be reflected on inflation. So if we have to hold it for 18 months before we get to our, our target goal of, of inflation and where we think economic growth is going to bottom, then it's 18 months. But if it takes longer because things are stickier and we'll talk about inflation, we come back from the break. But if it's stickier than we expected and it takes 24 or 36 months, well, we keep picking up that coupon until inflation, economic growth, and interest rates all align themselves. So again, that's why you buy longer duration bonds. It gives you time to, you know, for those fundamental factors to play catch up with the, re with the reality of the world that's going on. So and here, here's a real quick, here's another way to think about that, Lance. If we buy a 10-year bond at 4%, 
and overnight it drops to 3% and we sell it, we're going to get a price gain. Mm -hmm. That price gain reflects that extra 1% over 10 years, all 10 years that the market that we that we were promised that now people are only promised 3%. So you're monetizing interest rate changes over time. That's right. Uh, so, uh, so this well, so then the question becomes obviously, and this will this will be where we pick up after the break. But you know, you just you've been writing a series of articles on the website. Is it three parts or four parts now? How many have been published? Four, and I'm done. You're four, and you're done. So, <laughs> um, but Mike has been writing an article over the last four weeks talking about inflation because again, there's a lot of concern that we're about to have a reprisal of the resurgence of inflation in the 19s, like we saw in the 1970s. In the 1970s, we had inflation tick up. It then came down a bit, and then it took off to the moon because we had the, the oil crisis, the oil embargo, and, and a variety of other factors. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, from a lot of the doom and gloom group out there, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, analysis that, though this is about what's to happen and we're about to have this big, massive surge in inflation. So Mike's been going through this over the last four weeks, talking about inflation today versus the 1970s. We'll come back after the break and we'll talk about this. But if you go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, the latest post is up. It's talking about inflation in the 70s on the blog. So just go to, to Insights blog and it's the first post on uh, you know on our blog site but if you click that there's links to the previous three articles so you'll be able to go through the full analysis to understand if and we'll talk about whether we are not when we come back from the break are we set up for another resurgence of inflation because that outlook has everything to do with interest rates the economy commodities all these bets so we'll talk about that after the break with Mike Leibowitz. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so uh doing michael a little bit of a disservice this morning because we've only got 10 minutes to cover a fairly big topic but we'll do our best that we can to kind of condense this down but inflation uh, today versus the 1970s, it's an ongoing debate on, in, in the media, and particularly on a lot of podcasts, et cetera, and, and you know, the, you know, for the more bearish headlines that typically generate a lot of clicks and views. Um, you know, this idea of a resurgence of inflation is going to come back, it's going to devastate everything, uh, certainly garners a lot of attention. Uh, the question is, is, is that a valid thesis or not? And, of course, while anything is certainly possible, and we should never discount the, the possibility of what is deemed impossible, <laughs> you know, there, is a, there are some basic guidelines that we need to pay attention to that suggest what inflation will do over the next few years in particular 
and what's drive what drove inflation in the past versus what will drive inflation in the future. And there's some very big differences between today and the 1970s. So, Mike, uh, not to take up too much of your time, you know, but you know, we have to now summarize four articles into ten minutes. <laughs> so, go. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to actually start with today. If we go back and look at the kind of post-70s inflation period, we've had a period of slowing growth, slowing inflation. And that's due to a number of factors, productivity, demographics, and unproductive debt being used more and more. So, so before to set the stage, we're in an environment where inflation is slowly ticking lower over time, where economic growth is the growth rate is slowly ticking lower. Then in 2020, we have a pandemic, right? At, what do we do? We shut down the economy, not just us, the whole world. So goods aren't being produced. Shipping is and trucking are crippled. It, it's just the whole supply side of the economy is heavily damaged. And what does the government do? They let it rain money, right? Everyone's got money. Savings went through the roof. And once people got a little comfortable with the pandemic, they started spending that money. That's what people do with money. They spend it, especially when they get bonus money, lottery money. They spend it. So you have a massive influx of demand, massive supply problems at the same time. And that's economics 101 is that more demand, less supply gives you higher prices. And that's exactly what happened. And even today, 2024, we're still working through some of those problems. There's still car, that car manufacturers can't make enough cars because the chips are still in a shortage. So, so we're still living through the effects of it. But one of the key points is that that pandemic was a one-time issue. When we go back and look at the 70s, it, there was not one issue that drove inflation. It was a series of mistakes, uh, of blunders by the Fed, by the government. Um, so, so when you go back to the 70s, what's important to recognize is, and it's kind of weird to think about, but inflation started in the later 60s. In the later 60s, you were only about 30, you know, 30 plus years removed from the Great Depression. So jobs, un low unemployment mattered a lot to the Fed, to the government. In fact, today, the, Fe the Fed is charged with keeping maximum employment and low inflation. Back then, inflation wasn't, it was more, much more about unemployment. That changed in 1978 as a result of all the inflation. So the, the Fed also believed, and this was also wrongly, that the unemployment rate and inflation couldn't go up at the same time. Turns out they did. Um, and one more thing on the Fed's play. And look, you can go read. The Fed has put out numerous articles taking blame for all of this. This is they, they readily admit a lot of the problems that they created and, and perpetuated. They also thought Fed funds was the way to manipulate inflation. And Fed funds helps change the money supply. But if you want to change the money supply, change the money supply. And when you when they started tackling inflation in the later 70s, early 80s, that's what they did. They did they they were much more effective at, at changing bank reserves and affecting the money supply. So uh, then you have all these other issues. For one, Nixon didn't do himself any favors with inflation. He got rid of the gold standard. So what that did was it gave the Fed more power to make these mistakes. It gave the government more ability 
to run deficits, to spend, to you know push demand up. You had two oil shocks, embargoes. I mean, I remember as a kid that we would, you know, the lines would be crazy to get gas. Uh, you know, there was a, if your license plate ended an even number, you could only go on certain days and an odd number would be the other the other days. Uh, back then, we were half our oil we were dependent on from other countries. Today, we're 100 percent independent. Uh, we're still affected by global oil prices, but an embargo would have not the same effect today. Um, there were behavioral aspects that the Fed or government just didn't appreciate. They didn't think that if we thought the price of a car would be a lot more tomorrow, that we would buy it today instead of waiting for tomorrow, that companies wouldn't raise prices in anticipation of higher prices. So, you know, it's this whole notion that inflation begets inflation. And that's sort of like the price wage spiral, too, which they didn't appreciate that if inflation goes up, we ask for higher raises, we get the raise then the employer then has to raise prices. Um, unions were much stronger in the 1970s than they are today. One fifth of every worker was in the union. Today, it's one tenth. Um, you know, we've seen recently some unions have had some power, the auto workers, the FedEx UPS uh, union, um, even the uh, Hollywood, the, the writers and uh, actors. So, you know, th there are some similarities, uh, but at the end of the day, the, the 1970s was the government's fault, the Fed's fault, the government's fault. They didn't appreciate consumer behaviors. They, they stuck to rules, to economic rules that didn't make sense. The Fed wasn't really as knowledgeable about what they were doing and how it would affect things. So they kept making the same mistakes. Why? over and over again. That's why we had perpetual waves of inflation. The F the Fed, Powell, to his credit, did you hear that, Lance? I said to his credit. <laughs> yes, I heard. I don't say that often. <laughs> yeah. But look, honestly, they kept rates too low for too long and they kept doing QE too, too low too long. But once they realized there was inflation, they shot rates higher, Fed funds, but they also pushed the money supply down. Unlike the 1970s, they actually pushed it into negative growth. And that's a big deal because that has only happened a few times in the history of this nation. And if you look at when they were, the last time it really happened was World War II and the Great Depression. So having a shrinking money supply is a big deal. And the Fed recognized that. The Fed recognized it in the very late 70s. Paul Volcker recognized it. And if you listen to Powell's speeches, he 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 understands the lessons learned in the 70s and late 60s and 70s. Uh, he talks about the price price wage spiral all the time. He actually just talked about it at the last meeting. His concern that inflation expectations get out of hand, consumers start buying things in, in advance of when they would normally buy it, pushing up demand. So I think we're dealing with a Fed that gets it. But unfortunately, I think we're getting we're dealing with a government that doesn't get it. All they want to do is spend, spend, spend. And when the government spend, it does increase the money supply and it does create demand. Their money works through the system, whether it's the companies, whether it's through benefits, you know, whatever it may be, it works through the economy. So I think what we're dealing with now is a Fed that's kind of fighting the government. 
the Fed, the Fed has to one reason why the Fed wants to keep rates where they are instead of dropping them is because government spending is out of control. The deficit as a percentage of GDP growth is high. But what's not appreciated is that we don't spend money like this when the economy is really good. Typically, we spend a lot when the economy is in a recession, we're trying to bolster it. And it's usually the opposite when the economy is good. So my one concern, the flying the ointment, is that the government just doesn't get it. And that if we do go into another recession, they're going to start dropping money again. But again, there's not a supply problem. And that's a huge deal. Supply lines are not crippled. Production is pretty much going on as it was prior to, to the pandemic. So I think if we do get more inflation because the government does some stupid things, which is, you know, I think we have to assume that's likely. (laughs) There's not a supply side to worry about. And we also I think we have a somewhat vigilant Fed with Jerome Powell at the helm. Right. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, we do have an election coming up and, um, you know, this is, you know, for, you know, Powell. He's kind of in a tough spot. This reminds me a lot of 2018 where. The Fed was hiking rates and we were nowhere near the neutral rate. And, you know, Donald Trump, of course, at the time, who actually appointed Jerome Powell, by the way, to to be the Fed chair, was talking about firing him because he wasn't cutting rates and helping boost the economy. And so here we are heading into an election again. And theoretically, Powell's job's on the line. So it'll be interesting to see how this works out. Exactly. Um, so anyway, get ready to wrap up the show today. Mike, thanks so much for uh, hanging out with us this morning. Look, I'm, I'm reading the comments. You guys, seriously, <laughs> get off the doom and gloom train. Really, <laughs> it's not happening. Not anytime soon. The world is not going to end, people. <laughs> go go be happy. Go do something fun and productive today. Get some sunshine. All right. Uh, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. All of Michael's articles on the website now. Uh, so you go get the article on the 70s. Read all four parts. That'll give you something to do. Um, <laughs> news that will be out this weekend. Talking about the underpinnings of this market. Certainly not as nearly as strong. And there's certainly some warning signs of these underpinnings that suggest this recent rally. Uh, maybe closer to a correction than not. So again, we're watching all that stuff very carefully for you. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.